Hi, welcome to Origin Stories, a podcast about leadership inspired by comic books. Specifically, that first one. You know, the one that takes a seemingly ordinary person, gives them superpowers, and then sets them on the path to save the world. At some point, we might all be lucky enough to figure out our own superpowers and what we're meant to do with them. This podcast series seeks out origin stories from explorers, makers, and caretakers to learn about their path to discovery and what drives them to do what they do every day. I'm joined today by Dave Noble, who I'm going to call a bee champion. Dave started his career as an apiarist over 20 years ago after studying with Ohio State's Honeybee Research Lab. And that was back before the mid-2000s when colony collapse disorder sent honeybee populations plummeting. His life's work has been in caring for these important pollinators, and currently he has 50 hives across central Ohio, with the majority of them at his home base of Stratford Ecological Center. And that's where I first met Dave, at Stratford's Honey Heist, an amazing hands-on program where Dave teaches you about cool things like bee barf, and then helps you harvest your own honey. And that's just one educational forum for Dave. His impact over the decades has reached thousands of people, teaching classes, acting as mentor, and speaking at events. Dave's got a unique teaching style, for sure. He's got a knack for demystifying bees and creating empathy for them, which indeed creates a larger impact on his students and our community. I'm sure you're going to get a sense of that style today. Dave, I'm thrilled to have you today for Origin Stories. I am thrilled to be here. Yeah. Thank you very much. Oh, my God. I'm so excited to spend time with you again. Um, so you know the gist of Origin Stories. This is mm -hmm. a rooted a little bit in comic books. So I'm curious, at either growing up or as an adult, is there a comic book or a superhero that um, you affiliate with? There is. And I had to, th I had to think about this a while. And um, it's Ralph Hinckley. Oh. The greatest American hero. <laughs> I, I I always connected with him. Yes. Um, he's somebody who never really knew what his superpowers were. Mm. They were just bestowed upon him with literally no instruction manual. Right. You know, that's so funny. Um, so I bet there's a lot of us who can relate to that bumbling style. And I totally remember that show from being a kid in the 1980s, mostly from the introduction and that theme song, which seems to burn on my brain every time I hear it. Um, so speaking of being a kid, tell me a bit about your childhood. I spent a lot of time outdoors. So whether huh. it was in the summers at yeah. my grandparents, um, creaking. Mm. I spent a lot of time creaking, catching crayfish. Um, I spent a lot of time at the barn. You know, uh, just exploring the barn. I, you know, when I was younger, a barn is a wonderful place. That it can be anything you want. Yeah. With the right imagination. Uh, biking with my friends as I got older. Uh -huh. We would always be biking, swimming, playing frisbee. And I remember in high school, uh, you know, when we got into sort of our emo phase, you know, our <laughs> angst of the teenage years, uh, listening to a lot of alternative music and walking around on the railroad tracks in huh. central Ohio. Interesting. But the one common denominator was a lot of time outside, and I had a lot of interest in animals. And so was your, your grandparents had a barn. Were they farmers? Did yes. They, okay, and what were they? They were caring for animals. What were they? What kind of farmers mm -hmm. were they? So uh, both my grandparents were farmers, and uh, my mother's side, they were dairy farmers. Okay. So it was a lot of up early, yeah. out, to, out to take care of the cows, mm. and uh, a lot of hay fields, and uh, so a lot of... A lot of hard work. 
And were you extra hands for them? Did was, you become employed by your grandparents? My very first job when I was 13 was bringing in the hay from the hay field. So oh, my I was, gosh. You know, a 13-year-old boy, and here's all these hardened, hardest-working people I know, you know, my uncles and grandparents, um, taking me on as their co-worker. It was, it was quite a big thrill. Oh, I bet. Um, but, yeah, I've always been drawn to the outdoors and animals, mm-hmm. and I think my first job I wanted to pursue was an oceanographer. Huh. Due to an interest in sharks. Yeah. So I oh. guess, in a way, I've, I've always been drawn to those seemingly dangerous animals. Right. <laughs> what What about sharks did you love? You know, I think it's because my dad took me to see Jaws when I was too young. <laughs> <laughs> and it was my instinctual way of trying to cope with the fear of, uh, of a shark eating me at any time. You Got know? it. And, uh, uh, you know, knowledge is is the best way to deal with any kind of fear. So how did you dive into shark knowledge? Were you, did you consume a lot of reading or mm-hmm. books or what was that like for yeah, you as a kid? A lot of reading. Um, I, I mean, there was a time I could have told you any fact about any shark mm-hmm. anywhere in the world. Um, uh, so it was a lot of time at the library. Okay. And a lot of time reading and really delving into sharks. Huh. Uh, and it really, I, I mean, when I think back on it, uh, you know, after seeing Jaws at, I don't know what I was, six, seven years old. Yeah, that's young. I, I was, uh, a bath, bath time was scary. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was sort of a reaction to, to that, 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 you know, learn, learn about your fear. You yeah. know, fear is really largely based on what you don't know. Good for you. So. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So you love the outdoors. You had a deep interest in animals, particularly sharks, which is fascinating. You wanted to be an oceanographer. And so tell me about you as a, a student, right? So as you were growing up, like, what kind of student were you? Well, um, there's two phases to that story. Okay. And in, in high school, I was a horrible student. Okay. Um, Describe actually, horrible. Um, I was too smart for my own good. Mm. Um, I remember one time being called in. I think I was a junior in high school. And my English teacher was calling us in at the end of the grading period to show us our grades. And she showed me the grade, and it was a B. And uh, she was disappointed. She goes, you know you could do better, mm-hmm. but you're just not putting the work in. Mm-hmm. And uh, arrogant 16-year-old me was sort of like, yeah, I could work twice as hard and get slightly better grades. Right. Or not. <laughs> right. I can have a good time on those railroad tracks. Yes. Um, but then I took some time off, uh, entered the real world, paid my own bills, and quickly learned the value of education. Yeah. So when I returned to college as what they call a non-traditional student, mm. um, you would never catch me missing a minute of class. I was always enrolling in the you know 7.30 a.m. classes, okay. um, and I was a much better student. So what do you mean that you returned to college as a non-traditional student? Um, I was in my mid-20s okay. when I returned. So yeah. that's, that's what they classify as non-traditional, All not right. straight out of high school. Fascinating. I wonder yes. if they still have that classification today. It just seems like people take so many different paths now. Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, I encourage, I think both my kids are, are they're both, I, I know both of my kids are at the age that they're about to go to college, and I've, but I've always encouraged them, hey, you know, it's okay to take some time off yeah. because I think having a different path, for me especially, I, I would have I done horribly in college if I'd gone right after high school. So what did you do in between? As uh, you left high school, what did you explore? I went to, uh, I lived in England for a while. And so uh, back to the angsty teenager, Mm. I learned to play bass just enough to be able to get into a few bands in England and um, uh, lived for two and a half years, completely broke in England. Yeah. (laughs) Decided um, being broke was not fun. 
Hmm. Uh, so that's when I came back. Uh, spent a lot of time actually with my um, grandparents. Uh, as I, we mentioned before, they're both farmers. And did a lot of farming with them. And that's when I got interested in gardening and plants, hmm. food plants, mostly crop plants, and um, interested in, in plant breeding. And that's what uh, got me to go into college. Okay. And so what were you studying in college then? It was uh, plant pathology. So okay. it was diseases of plants. Okay. So approaching breeding. Um, uh, you know, for my own philosophy is when you're, when you're breeding, I think the number one thing you have to consider is disease. Mm. Um, uh, goes along with my own philosophy of if I'm growing something, I don't want to have to rely on chemicals and pesticides to keep it healthy. Okay. Um, we can we can manage a lot of that with breeding, and so that's how I approached um, my dreams of becoming a plant breeder. Interesting. And, you know, breeding a more delicious, more disease resistant tomato. So you um, thought you were going to get into agriculture like your grandparents? Yes. Yeah. And more on the academic side. Sure. Um, because that's one thing I learned from my grandparents, whereas they did they did well in, in farming, um, but it's always best to uh, to not be the farmer and not be dependent on the weather mm. to write your paycheck for you. Okay. Um, because, you know, I could see how the weather would uh, cause direct impact on them. Sure. Uh, you know, farmers honestly have, have it, some of the toughest jobs that there is. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and that goes with beekeepers as well, because they're all part of that agriculture. Yeah. So what else did you take away from living with your grandparents and that really kind of seeded young Dave in his pursuits? All four of my grandparents um, really honestly enjoyed what they did. Yeah? And How lucky they, are they? Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and that, that whole idea of do what you love, the money will follow, um, I, you know, we could argue about how true that is or isn't, but when you do something that you truly enjoy. Yeah. It may not be your one true passion, but you, you enjoy it. Um, it makes the work so much easier. Hmm. And it makes you look forward to it. Yeah. I, um, I remember one time uh, when my daughter was much younger, I would take her to work with me every now and again. And as we were leaving one day, we stopped to have a little hike before leaving Stratford. And um, she said, Dad, I have to tell you, I really like your job. And I was like, that's funny because you don't do my job. <laughs> so what do you? What exactly do you mean that you like my job? Yeah. She goes, well, when you come home from your job, you're always happy, mm. and you're not grumpy and complaining. And you know that may not be true a hundred percent of the sure. time. Sure. But that just reinforces that idea that, that I learned from my grandparents that that you need to enjoy what it is you do every day. Yeah, and what a great me reminder that it's not just important for your own fulfillment, but your behavior, right, your love yes. of your work, you know, permeates to your family and the people around you. Exactly. And so how amazing that your daughter recognized and felt like the good vibes coming from you. Right. Um, certainly a great role model, but I'm sure it made her childhood even better. Yeah. Um, cool. So let's, you, you were in school and you were learning about plant breeding. Um, at what point did you take a turn into learning about bees? Well, okay. So of course with plant breeding, pollination yeah. is critically important. So that's always been my entrance into bees is mm. the pollination okay. side of things rather than the honey. And I, the way I like to tell the story, it may not be exactly on this timeline, but I walked over to the bee lab at OSU, um, just to ask to find out more about bees or where I could learn about bees, beekeeping, and pollination. Mm -hmm. 
and um, uh, the bee breeder that was employed there at the time, Sue Kobe, who's a top, you know, world-renowned um, bee breeder, uh, she asked uh, if I was a student at OSU mm-hmm. and when my next class was. Okay. And um, I told her it was, you know, in two hours or whatever it was. And she said, well, can you be here tomorrow morning? And so I basically just started working there. Huh. And um, not only was it fantastic to be able to work under somebody like um, and learn from somebody like Sue Kobe, uh, but to have that ability to be at a university yeah. where you could just walk in and, and now I'm learning beekeeping, you know, as part of my college experience. And um, I still tell some of my beekeeping students today, the best way to learn beekeeping is on other people's bees. Find Say more about that. Why about that? Well, beekeeping is all about making mistakes. Oh. Um, especially when you, you're beginning. And it can be costly. Um, it's it's a, a very steep learning curve. And I was blessed. I was in a place where I was working on somebody else's bees. Somebody else had to fix my mistakes okay. as I learned. Okay. And um, to be able to do that, I mean, being thrown in on your own with your own hives and you're fully responsible for them can add to the overwhelming nature of beekeeping. Can you talk about like what what kind of mistake would someone make as a bee and then what's the impact or the expense that you were describing? Mm-hmm. Well, in this day and age, um, the expense is the bees will die. Mm. Most new beekeepers lose their first two to four hives mm. over the first two to three years. Okay. They just don't make it through the winter. They don't survive the season. Um, because there is so much to learn um, and the mistakes are Honeybees are such a foreign animal, and they're domesticated livestock, but they're so different from any other animal we interact with. Hmm. And the first thing being is that they're a super super organism. Okay. So it's the entire colony. All 60,000 plus bees make one animal. And it's really hard. I mean, I struggle with that sometimes. You know, it's really hard um, to learn that. But they're also insects. They're one of the very few domesticated insects and you know cows pigs sheep these are all mammals like us right so a lot of their behavior is not totally foreign mm-hmm. and we we have more interaction with mm-hmm. animals like you know cows and chickens and different things like that um so it's just so foreign and most new beekeepers it takes a couple of years for them to even understand what they're looking at you're, you're kind of blowing my mind right now. And, and what, I mean, I remember even at Stratford when we, mm-hmm. we were there for the Honey Heist and you were explaining some of this. It, it's just, it, it's fascinating. And mm-hmm. I think people take bees as an example, you know, for granted, right? You see them all the time. You know, worst case, people are telling you to be afraid of them. Right. Best case, people are telling you to, um, you know. Do everything you can to save them. Do everything yeah. you can to save them, right? Honor them because they're so, so important. So let's talk first about sort of the impact of pollen pollination because mm-hmm. you started with, you got into this because you were trying to think about plants, right? Breeding plants and impact of pollination. Just like a quick sort of fact um, drop for us. Like, why are bees so important to pollination? Give mm-hmm. me the Cliff Notes version of that. Cliff Notes, I'm going to use the example of almonds because in, in the bee world, that's the big that's the big one. Yep. So the almond industry, it's something like 500 million acres of California produce 90% of the world's almonds. Wow. Almonds are um, dependent on honeybee pollination. Okay. So 
tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of hives go out there to pollinate these orchards. And so the almond industry does not exist without honeybees and the honeybee industry. Um, and they know that. And it's a, it's a strange relationship um, uh, that beekeepers and bees have with the almond industry because there's a lot of practices like in any industrialized agriculture that are not insect friendly. Right. You know, insecticides, fungicides, Absolutely. all these all these chemicals that they, they, they have to use have negative consequences for all insects, Got including it. the bees. But at the same time, the almond industry is probably one of the largest financial supporters of honeybee research. Oh, because good for them. they they understand yeah. how depend that there is no almond industry without honeybees. And you could make that um, argument for most any there's very few agricultural products that we have that don't need bees, mm-hmm. like corn. We, we do corn would be fine. Okay. And then there's those agricultural products that don't have to have bees but really benefit. So like strawberries, you can produce strawberries without bees, um, but study after study shows that when bees pollinate strawberries, the individual fruits can be 17 to 20% larger. Wow. And if you're a strawberry farmer selling yeah. your strawberries by weight. You want that. You want that. All right, that, that's super cool. So you, you went into this learning about bees because you mm-hmm. were thinking about pollination. You were thinking about your plants. You got involved with bees. You started to make a few mistakes, but you're learning about them. At what point were you like, okay, so I'm going to leave the plant breeding behind <laughs> because now I'm so enamored and I'm, I'm making this up. But yeah. tell me your story. Like, How did you pivot into staying with the, the bee? But I like being around bees. What do you like I, about? I, they force you... To, to slow down yeah. and to work on their terms. Hmm. And I often tell new beekeepers, you'll, you'll finally become a competent beekeeper the day that you realize that you work for the bees, hmm. not the other way around. And the more you understand the bees, the more that you're able to interpret what they're doing and listen to what they're telling you, hmm. um, the more effective you are as a manager. Hmm. and being able to get them to um, a different place. Like whether it's producing more honey or producing more bees, whichever yeah. whichever way you want to manage. Um, and there's, so that because they're stinging insects, you have to work on their terms. Yeah. They're, they're the best trainers in the world. They know negative reinforcement. Yeah. You, know, you do something they don't like, they that's it. They tell you you're stung. And it forces you to slow down and it forces you to be observant and in the moment mm-hmm. and focusing on them. I feel like we should all become beekeepers yes. then because I mean what you're saying and I smiled um, as you were talking is, is it's no different than working with people, right? Mm-hmm. I mean I think the best leaders are the best leaders because they slow down and it's not about their agenda. It's about listening to the team around them, right? right. And what do they need? And you're, you're here for a collective purpose, right? right. Um, but you mm-hmm. have to be in tune to that. And, and so I think maybe we should all become beekeepers to, to yeah. learn that sense of patience. It's very, beekeeping is very meditative on, in, a, in a lot of ways, but it, it's true. You can't be adversarial and get things done. That, mm-hmm. that I mean, you can, you can accomplish some things when you're adversarial. But when you're working with people and working with people on their terms, or I often refer to bees as people, you can accomplish a lot more. And I use the analogy, I call it the dog at the door. So uh, I was giving a presentation to a fifth grade class one day and one kid asked a brilliant question. He said, 
as a beekeeper, how do you know what to do every day? Mm. And I had to think for a minute, and um, I said, well, the bees tell me. And the whole class, this look came across every kid's <laughs> face, like, you know, oh, stranger danger. <laughs> you know? um, and I said, yeah, you guys probably think I'm, I'm losing my mind here a little bit. Raise your hand if you think I'm a little bit not so. They all raised their hand. And I said, so raise your hand how, if you have a dog at home. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of hands stayed up. Mm-hmm. I said, so has your dog ever sat at the back door and looked at it? Hands stayed up. And I, I said, what did you do? And this one kid said, well, I opened the door. And I said, why would you open the door? He goes, well, because the dog needed to go to the bathroom. I said, how do you know that? Well, because the dog told... Oh. oh, yeah. And so that that whole process, that started me understanding, you know, in that situation, who's in charge? The dog? Yeah. Or the dog owner? And... You know, leadership is that balance between the dog's in charge, but you're the leader. Yeah. Because without the, the due diligence of training mm-hmm. and the, the, the homework and the hard work of knowing and understanding the dog's behavior mm-hmm. and how to manipulate that behavior, yeah. that dog will never get to a point where it can tell you what to do. Yeah. So the, the dog in that moment is the boss, but it's only the boss because of all the work and patience that you put into understanding the dog to get them to a point where they can tell you what they need. Sure. Well, and so also fast, I mean, there's one in your scenario, there's one dog, right, with bees. And educate me a little bit. When mm-hmm. you're talking about a hive, right, and we talked about like you're, you're managing 50 hives currently, mm-hmm. um, give or take a few. How many bees are part of a hive? Um Anywhere from twenty to sixty thousand. It depends. Through the year, it changes. Okay, right? okay. And you talked about a little bit earlier that you know there's this idea of they're not individual organisms. Like you're talking mm-hmm. about the colony. Yes. So, you you started off studying bees for this purpose. Like you're you're caring for bees and you're 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 caring for hives and you're creating queens for other folks. But somewhere early in your career. So, Scientists had a big oh crap moment mm-hmm. because of, of what was happening to the colonies, yeah. right? Um, and so, can you talk a little bit about colony collapse disorder? Again, give us sort of the the Cliff's Notes version yes. of what exactly happened. I, I think collectively people know bee populations plummeted, but like, why, why was that? And how alarming is this of a thing? Right. That's a, that's a great question. Um, obviously, I get that a lot. Um, it's alarming in several ways, and especially in the early, it was about 2000, 2006 that yeah. it was first described. And um, the fact that the word disorder is in there, mm. when, the sci- when a scientist uses the word disorder, that really means I have no clue. Oh. <laughs> okay. Because it's just a collection of symptoms that we don't know the cause of. Um, luckily, we quickly started to learn. We know that it's a mite, it's a parasite that's causing the problem, um, and it's not... It's an introduced parasite from another continent. Um, And we have, even in the last three years, we've learned so much more about what that parasite does and how it actually, you know, um, uh, damages and kills hives. Number one thing I learned from plant breeding and plant pathology, you have to know your enemy. Mm. You know, it comes from the art of war. Mm -hmm. If you don't know your enemy, you've got no hope of fighting them. If you don't know how your enemy is killing you. Got it. You can't stop them. Yep. 
Um, and so as I've been teaching beekeeping, it's changed over time. With a, more information comes in, it changes how I keep bees and how I teach about keeping bees. Um, so the, the quick and short story is, it's really just the honeybee, the western honeybee, that has the problem of colony collapse disorder, or now we just call it varroa mites. Huh. Um, you know, here in Ohio alone, there's some almost 500 species of bees okay. um, that are wild native bees. Uh, total bees or honeybees? Uh, total species of not honeybees. Okay. Yeah, so like bumblebees, yeah. sweat bees, um, there's cellophane bees, all kinds. Um, those bees are not being affected by um, the varroa mites. Okay. So that's specifically to the agricultural livestock known as honeybees. Got it. Um, the wild bees are suffering. Um, we're not sure the, the exact extent because we don't have good records going way back as to their numbers and populations. Yeah. Um, but we know they are, several of them are suffering largely due to habitat loss, largely due to pesticide contamination. Mm. So it's really hard because we've got these four or five different things that are affecting hundreds and thousands of different species of bees. Yeah. And so in the public, in the general public, um, we think of bees, we think pesticides, that's it, that's the problem. Um, and like with anything in life, when you get under the surface, it's a little more complex. Sure. So I would say I'm probably more worried about the native and wild bee populations mm. than honeybees. Okay. When you have a honeybee that, you know, a livestock animal that's so, that produces so much valuable for value for agriculture, um, we're going to figure out a way to keep them going. Oh, I, mean, I don't know if you remember sure. way back with the... Um, the mad cow mm-hmm. disease scare. Yep. Yes. Um, one thing I always like to say is, you know, people, often people jump into beekeeping because they want to help save the bees because of colony collapse. Okay. Um, nobody took up dairy farming when mad cow came around, you know. Um, but the, we, we still have hamburgers. And right. We still have beef and we still have milk. Yeah. Um, um, I don't think it'll be easy. I think it's going to be very tough. But I don't worry about the, the future of the honeybee um, I'm not worried they're going to go extinct. Let me ask you this. So when all of this was happening in the 2000s, and people were, mm-hmm. like you said, it was a disorder. People weren't exactly sure what was happening. And so in this moment of dramatic population decline, mm-hmm. is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. Um, in not knowing exactly what was going on, was there any change for you in terms of like how you approached your work, knowing that like this thing was going on around you, you know, were these animals that you you cared for? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would say ever since 2006, I mean, almost yearly, it's it's I'm changing my beekeeping strategy. It was it was a frightening time for a lot of beekeepers, yeah. um, and they're like with any industry and any animal, there were a lot of people who were, you know, this has worked for 50 years. We're just going to keep we're going to double down and keep doing what Got we're it. doing. And I think that people. And the beekeepers and scientists who thrived and, and were the most help were those that were willing to say, no, we just have to change everything. Um, it's fascinating. As you were talking about this, you have this mentality of, I need to flex, I need to change. And mm-hmm. I it reflected a little bit back to the beginning where you're talking about being at the honeybee lab and you said, we're, you're going to fail, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the types of things that you help teach others in terms of how do they... Uh, you know, because how do you become adaptive? How do you learn to fail and be okay with that? Because that, that's yeah. not a mentality I think a lot of people have. I tell beekeepers, um, success in beekeeping 
is about being able to change your plans. Yeah. That means you have to have a plan to start with. Mm, mm-hmm, and it also mm-hmm. means that plan will not come to fruition. Yeah. It will fail. Yeah. And so you just have to get into a mindset of um, things are not going to work out the way I'm envisioning them working out. Right. And you have to have some humility about that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So. What a great lesson to share with your, your students and help them understand. Mm-hmm. You know, and Dave, what I appreciate, and I think I said this even at the beginning, is like you've got a very distinct um, teaching style. So mm-hmm. part of it is this Zen meditative state that you talk a little bit about. But the other thing that I've appreciated about learning from you is um, you've got a sense of humor. You demystify things. Can, how did you learn that style? I've traveled around to a lot of different conferences for beekeeping. Yeah. And I have seen some amazing scientists and beekeepers give fantastic presentations. Mm -hmm. And I've also seen them present wonderful information horribly. Yeah. And I quickly saw that there's something that I like to call the intimidation gap. Mm. That when an expert presents themselves as an expert, there's uh, a gap now that the audience can't reach be reached through um, because the audience sees that expert as being put up above and they they get in the mindset of I'm not going to understand half of this anyway and I, I'm afraid to ask questions right because I'll I, look I'm stupid look, exactly huh and I love stupid questions yeah I'll, I'll, I'll have to elaborate on that um, stupid questions are my favorite but I learned very quickly that people are more receptive if I don't present myself as quote an expert mm-hmm. If I have some humility, mm-hmm. if I have um, humor, and some self-deprecating humor. Yeah. And, you know, leadership books will often say, you know, don't be afraid to say no. No is a great word. And I think being able to say I don't know is way more powerful. Hmm. Because if you don't know, your, your answer is going to be a little bit of BS, you know, if you don't really know. Sure. So knowing your limits of your knowledge... All of a sudden, when somebody hears the expert say, I don't know, that's a great question. Yeah. All of a sudden, they're like, all right, now we're all, we're getting closer to the same level. Absolutely. Now I'm receptive to learning. Yeah. And, um, you know, humor is just a fantastic way to reach people. I have, speaking of the stupid questions, um, I tell adults and, and school children when they come in, I say, you know, I want you guys to ask questions. Because my personal philosophy as an educator is that when somebody asks questions, they're going to learn Mm -hmm. if you can provide them even with an I don't know. That's right. Well, and I think there's something about great teachers spark curiosity, right? The the desire Mm -hmm. to learn more and curiosity comes with asking questions and diving into the unknown. And so kudos to you for creating this educational style that invites people and makes them feel comfortable to, mm-hmm. to be curious because that's so important to, to, to people's growth and in, in your space like to learn more about bees and the natural world around them. That's, yeah. that's super, super cool. Um, these are some really great lessons behind teaching. One of the things that I'm also curious about, um, is, so part of it is creating curiosity so people learn more, but I think part of it is also sparking a sense of awe around. And you said you, your daughter recognizes that you love what you do, mm-hmm. and I imagine some of this has to do with just some some crazy things that you've seen, some really cool things that you've seen that a lot of people don't get to see in there every day. So what yeah. is the, the craziest or the coolest thing you've ever s- experienced with your bees? <laughs> 
Gosh, that's a long list. I'll, I'll, I'll pick one from this past summer that, that I thought was really, um, that I hadn't seen before. Every year, the bees, I mean, I guess that's one of the reasons I love them is because every year they're showing me something new. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was out there, I was doing a boot, part of beekeeping is swarm management. So mm. uh, a hive reproduces by splitting in half and half the hive leaves, and that's where you find that big ball of bees hanging on a limb somewhere. And they follow the queen? They'll follow the, yeah, the old queen. Okay. And um, so that's how they go from being one hive into being two hives. Okay. And so part of my role as a beekeeper is to manage that swarming process. Hmm. And so since that's, you know, that's what domestication is all about. Um, is controlling reproduction okay. in animals. So. <laughs> that um, sounds very big brother, but we'll, <laughs> right. that's a topic for another day. Right. Um, but there's a certain season for it, and so there's certain tasks that you do, and I was out doing those tasks. Okay. So I'm like, okay, I've got this week and next week that I've got to do A, B, and C. Yeah. And you prioritize. You know which hives are most likely to swarm, so you, you prioritize. And I'm out there doing my work, and the very next hive that was on my list to work all of a sudden, bees start pouring out the front. I mean, it looks like it's on fire and there's smoke. There's so huh. many bees pouring out. It had started to swarm. Uh. So I was just literally minutes too late. Okay. And so my first instinct, I'd never been really in this situation before, um, where the hive just started swarming, was I can stop the swarm if I can catch the queen. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I went around front of the hive and started looking for the queen to come out because she'll come out like all the rest. Okay. And at one point, I just realized there were too many bees. You know what? You have to stop. Let this happen. And um, they fill they fill the air, and through a whole bunch of complicated processes, they figure out where they're going to land. Okay. And um, so there's this cloud of bees, and they're kind of amorphously moving around from branch to branch, trying to decide as a group where to land. Okay. And um, I just sort of took a break from work and said, we're just going to watch this. Yeah. We're going to enjoy it. And when they land, I'll go catch them, <laughs> you know. Um, and how many bees are we talking about? I'm trying to picture this in my head. This was, I would, I, the size of it, it was probably about Five pounds of bees, so maybe forty or fifty thousand bees. Whoa! It was a lot. Um, not the biggest swarm I've I've had, um, uh, but it was a lot. And no, it was just an amazing thing. I was I was really, um, I mean, I've seen hives swarm before, but I mean, I saw the whole process from beginning to end there. Yeah. Um, and was able to catch it, and yeah. so it was a, it was a it was just another reminder that sometimes you have to stop yeah. and realize you're not in charge of the situation. Right. You know? Um, just take it in. Just take it in and, and hope for the best and, and learn something from it. That's amazing. So. Um, and so for others who want to learn, and particularly about bees, mm -hmm. what would be the one or two things that you might offer to folks, suggestions you might offer to, to novices, people who mm -hmm. want to learn about bees? Uh, contact, there's local beekeeping groups. Um, Anywhere in the U.S., if you type in beekeeping club, um, you'll get in touch with other beekeepers. Mm -hmm. um, go out and experience a hive. You yeah. know, I know you've been out to the hives. Yeah. You can probably attest that that's a pretty unique experience. It's amazing. Um, even if you're not interested in getting into beekeeping, yeah. it's worth doing. Um, but there's uh, beekeeping clubs. Most all of them offer education. Yeah. Um, of course, I do as well offer education through Stratford. Mm -hmm. um, uh, 
and just dive out there. There's another way, and I, I get more and more interested in non-honeybees every year. Yeah. Um, and my secret passion is hornets and wasps. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Most, well, yeah. It, it goes I, back to the sharks and the danger. Exactly. exactly. They're, they're really fascinating creatures. And actually, bees are just a type of wasp. Yeah. Um, they're vegetarian wasps. Yeah. Um, uh, they, you know, they decided to take up the vegetarian lifestyle however many hundreds of thousands of years ago. Um, but if you really are interested in bees, even outside of beekeeping, there is so much to do with our wild bee population mm. and citizen mm-hmm. science. Mm-hmm. Um, here in Ohio, we have the Ohio Bee Atlas, and it's through the iNaturalist app. Oh, yeah. And um, so we track uh, the bees. We, like I'm involved in that. <laughs> uh, the Ohio Bee Atlas tracks... Um, uh, native bee populations, and I've been out on several of these. Where we, you, it's really as simple as going out and reporting about the bees that you see, yeah. and uh, getting photographs of them if you can, and that gives scientists so much information about mm-hmm. what's happening with bees. Mm-hmm. I honestly think that's more valuable to helping protect bees mm. than becoming a beekeeper. Yeah. So check in with your local extension offices. OSU Extension has a great bee, wild native bee program. Beekeeping clubs uh, are a great way to learn more about honeybees. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it's just fascinating. It it sure is. I mean, those are great resources. I hope people will check those out. I know Mm -hmm. I'm going to check some of them out. And, I mean, so wonderful to learn just more about the world around you Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, particularly about honeybees. But as you mentioned, there's – there's thousands of species of bees, and yeah. even the ones that I think people are intimidated back back to the the sharks, right? right and you're right. afraid. Like the best way to address your fear is to learn more about them. And the more you learn about things like yeah. hornets and wasps and what they can do and why they exist and how they contribute to our world, I think it, yeah. it again demystifies and pulls the fear out of that stuff. So yeah. thank you for those resources. Um, as we come to a close, Dave, mm-hmm. you know I like to ask the question about superpowers. So yep. thinking back on you know your journey and your successes and how you've influenced others, what what kind of superpower do you think ha- has helped you along the way? I I'm going to say it's two things I've touched on already, yeah. and it's listening. Whether it's listening to the bees, um, listening to students, um, and when I say listening, you know, I'm not, I don't mean strictly when a student says, could you do a class on how to find a queen? Because often you don't get such a straightforward, um, it's through behaviors, it's through, you have to tease out that, I need you to do this for me. Um, You have to understand the behaviors and the unsaid things. So if I have a superpower, I think it's hearing those unsaid things. Yeah. Because a student who doesn't know something doesn't know how to tell you what they don't know. Mm. And so you really have to pay attention to what they're doing and saying. Um, Same with the bees. Uh, A lot of time managing bees is me sitting with the hive and going through it and and evaluating its behaviors. and then the other, the other superpower, I think, is admitting that I don't know something. Mm. Having some humility and some humor. Um, you know, obviously, this is a podcast, so you can't see, but my, my uh, superhero costume is patched pants yeah. that look ridiculous. And I think when I get on stage looking ridiculous, 
that sets people at ease. Like, oh, we're not going to hear a bunch of words we don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're going to have some fun with this. Mm. And so bringing some fun uh, into education um, is probably, uh, I, I like to think um, that that's one of my superpowers. Awesome. Well, Dave, you know? thank you. And thank you for bringing fun to this discussion. <laughs> I've you. really enjoyed chatting with you again. It was great. Awesome. Um, so... This has been Origin Stories. Uh, I want to give a quick shout out to Tim Baldwin and Indianola Production, who are my partners in crime and editing and making this sound awesome. You can download this podcast and subscribe to future Origin Stories via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume your audio. Thanks for listening, friends. I hope to catch you next time.